Amen. John chapter 11, brothers, verses 1 through 16 is our passage for this morning. And I've entitled this particular message, Lessons in the Midst of Crises. Lessons in the Midst of Crises. You're familiar with the story of Job, I'm sure, who was, uh, as scripture would tell us, a righteous man in his day. But he was a man, as you've read the account of Job, who lost everything, right? Lost everything, lost his livelihood, his property, his possessions, lost people that he loved in his life, um, family members, laborers, workers under him. I mean, Job really tasted of death, didn't he? He tasted of death like few people have during his lifetime. And yet, it was in the midst of his, uh, that great crises in his life and the chaos uh, in his life that he learned great lessons about God, about himself, about the way that God works um, in and through his creatures and his creation. And this really is the way that I want us to approach John chapter 11. We're going to slow down as we look at John chapter 11. I just could not, with a clear conscience, preach all of John 11 uh, and this great miracle of Jesus because there's so much to glean and learn about our Lord and about ourselves and about how God works in, through this particular chapter, John chapter 11. And what we have here, obviously, as you think about John 11, is, is the final climactic miracle of John's gospel. We've seen six other miracles. This is the seventh of seven miracles, the final one and the great one. And we've seen six others. We've seen Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2. We've seen the healing of the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, the restoring of the invalid man in John chapter 5. The multiplying of the loaves and the fish in John chapter 6. The walking of Jesus on water in John chapter 6, the latter part of that. And then sixth, the curing of the man born blind in John chapter 9, verses 1 through, 1 through 12. But now we have this, this amazing miracle of Jesus where he raises a man from the dead. And it's really astounding when you look at this particular miracle and you contemplate it. Uh, what Jesus does here, because this occurs, this raising of Lazarus occurs four days after Lazarus has already been in the grave. Amazing, amazing. That by the time that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the body would have begun to, to deteriorate, right? To decompose, to, to decay. In fact, chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone later on, verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So, I mean, this is an, an astounding miracle. There were two other times that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. There was the uh, uh, Luke chapter 7 account of the raising of the widow's son, right? And then in Luke chapter 8, Jairus' daughter was raised from the, from the dead. But neither of those were as dramatic as this particular raising of a man from the dead, Lazarus. Not to take anything away from those other two miracles, but it's astounding to see what Jesus does here. So we're going to take our time working through John chapter 11 because this is a rich, rich account. And today we want to just look at the first 16 verses, which really sort of set the stage, set the setting for what Jesus does here and this staggering miracle that he does here in John chapter 11. And so right off the bat, I think there are three wonderful lessons that I want you to jot down if you're taking notes, which you should take notes. Uh, three wonderful lessons that we learn um, in the midst of, of crises, okay? 
because there's something valuable for us to learn here, lessons that are valuable for us to learn here of how God works even in the midst of a crisis such as death, what we see here in John chapter 11. So first, jot this down. We learn here in this account that we must be comforted by the fact that there is always a higher purpose in what God is doing. Be comforted by God's higher purposes. If you walk with the Lord for some time, and maybe, and some of you have walked with Christ much longer than others of us, then you know this. You know that there are always greater, higher purposes going on in everything that God does. You've learned this through your life, in your life experience as a, as a believer. Unfortunately, oftentimes, more often than not, we, we see those higher purposes in retrospect, don't we? Looking back, oh, wow, I see now what God did in those circumstances that he allowed me to go through. But the battle is to, to recognize those things, not in hindsight, but in the moment, as we're going to see later on. Well, in these opening four verses, we have this, this crisis, the biggest kind of crisis that you can experience as a human being. This family here, Lazarus's family, uh, faces the reality of death. And those whom he loves face the reality of this man dying. Nothing impacts us at the core of who we are more than the reality of death. Nothing impacts a human being and strikes fear in us more than somebody that we love dying, right? That's the reality of being a human being. And yet even in the midst of this, this tragedy that this family faces, what we learn here is that for those who Jesus loves, there is always a higher purpose than meets the eye if you have faith to see that, right? And we pray for the grace of God to give us faith in the midst of these things. Look at verse 1. It says, now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. John says there, this was a certain man because neither Lazarus nor this family, at least in the gospel of John, have been mentioned up until this point. But this is a family, brothers, that was well known to Jesus. He had a relationship with this family. And we know this because of the end of Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, where the Lord Jesus, in that account, it says that he visited the home of one Martha and Mary, and obviously those are the sisters of Lazarus, right? So this is a well-known family to Jesus. Jesus had been in their home, had a relationship with this family before this particular account here. And they lived in a small little town called Bethany. And Bethany was a, a different, this Bethany was a different Bethany than the one that we find in John chapter 1 verse 28, where John the Baptist was baptizing in a place called Bethany. This particular Bethany where this, this family lived was about two miles from the capital city of Jerusalem. It's located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And it was located along the road which leads to the famous city that you know, Jericho. Okay, so a different Bethany, two miles from the capital city of Jerusalem. This is where this family lived. And then in verse 2, John gives us a, a snapshot of the future, something that has not happened yet. Verse 2, it was Mary, he says, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Mary is going to do this in John chapter 12. But what this tells us is that John's first century readers who would have been reading this gospel were already aware of the action of Mary in anointing Jesus' feet for burial. They were already aware of it. Remember, John's gospel was written somewhere around what? 90 AD, right? 
And so by that time, Matthew and Mark had been written and had been circulating. And so people reading the Gospel of John later on would have been familiar with Mary's anointing of Jesus. So, but all of this intro information really highlights the relationship that Jesus had with this particular family. And here's yet, as a side note, brothers, here's yet another great example of the true humanity of Christ, right? Jesus was truly human. And when Jesus came to earth, he wasn't far and distant from people. He identified himself with people. Jesus cultivated a relationship with people. And we get evidence of this here in how close he is to this particular family. Now, why did Jesus cultivate a relationship with people? Was it just to sort of score brownie points with people so that they would believe in him and follow him? Was it Jesus just putting on an act so that he might say, the scripture might say later on, love people as Jesus loves people? Why did Jesus pursue a relationship with people? What was his motivation? Well, his motivation was love, wasn't it? He loved people. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying through this messenger, Lord, he whom you, what? Love is ill. Jesus loved this family. That's why he pursued a relationship with this family and other people. He loved this family. He loved Lazarus. That word, by the way, there in verse 3 is the word phileo. Translated love, phileo, from which we get the word for the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? The city of brotherly love. Phileo is the love of a friend, a brotherly love, an affectionate kind of love. Jesus had this kind of love for Lazarus and for this family and for the people that he ministered to. See, this is the place to start as an application or implication for us. If you are having a difficult time pursuing relationships with people, whether in your home or in the church or out in the world, this is the place to start. Check your love life. How much are you really loving other people? If you're having a difficult time pursuing people, ask God to check your heart and ask him to give you a greater measure of of love for people because that's what motivated Jesus to pursue people. It was love for them, a genuine affection for them. And so Lazarus was a dear, beloved friend of Jesus. And Mary and Martha know that Jesus loved Lazarus and that he had healing power to help their brother be healed of this particular illness. So they send messengers to go tell him this. Now, this is where things at first glance get kind of interesting. Watch this. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he heard that Lazarus was ill. He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. A couple of things stand out about what we read here. One, if you look back to John chapter 10 and verse 40, it says that Jesus had gone away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. This means that Jesus was currently on the east side of the Jordan when there's a messenger sent to him. And that messenger had to travel one day from Bethany, two miles away from Jerusalem, to the east side of the Jordan to tell uh, uh, Jesus about Lazarus being ill. Remember, different than our day and age, right? They couldn't text each other, right? No smartphones. They had to travel one day. This messenger had to travel one day over to tell Jesus about Lazarus. And this means, the text doesn't tell us, but it's quite possible that, that Lazarus died on, as this messenger is on his way to tell Jesus about um, Lazarus. 
We know this because verse 17, if you notice, says that by the time that Jesus came to Lazarus, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb how many days? Four days. One day for the messenger to make his way to Jesus. Jesus, later on, we find out, stalls for two days. And then he travels one day to Lazarus, four days, right? So that's very interesting for us in highlighting what happens later on. The other thing that stands out is what Jesus says here in verse 4 as to the, as to the purpose uh, for this man being ill and dying. Verse 4, Jesus, when he heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. In an ultimate sense, right? Because we know that Lazarus does die physically. But in an ultimate sense, it is for the glory of God, he says, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, what do you think about that statement by Jesus? I mean, is Jesus being insensitive here? Is he brushing aside the, the sickness of his dear friend? What do you guys think? Of course not. Of course not. All we got to do is look at the track record of Jesus. All we got to do is look at the way that he displays great compassion time and time again toward people, right? See, just because we don't understand what Jesus is doing oftentimes as we read these gospel accounts doesn't mean that he doesn't. He has an intent and a purpose in everything that he does as God does, right? That's true in this case. That's true in our lives as we're going to see in a few minutes. So... Jesus loves and cares for this man. He's not being insensitive. What Jesus is saying in verse 4 is there is a, a higher, greater purpose for what is happening here with Lazarus. I'm about to show you right now, right? God is doing something of greater significance through this trial than meets the eye. What's this higher purpose? It's the glory of God. So that the Son of God, as he says, namely Jesus himself, may be glorified, may be exalted, made me, may be made much of through this particular uh, um, miracle that he performs. Now, where have we seen this before? The greater purposes of God to display his glory. Remember back in John chapter 9 and verse 3 with the healing of the man born blind? John 9, verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, right, this blind man, or his parents but that the works of God may be displayed in him. There it is. Ultimately, I'm going to do this miracle. I'm going to heal this blind man so that the works of God may be displayed in that particular miracle. And back in John chapter 2, if you remember with the first miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine, do you remember what it says in John chapter 2, verse 11? This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And here it is, and manifested, revealed, made known his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That was the purpose for Jesus doing what he did. To display the glory of God and his own glory. And so throughout the gospel of John, we've seen that Jesus' works market were for the greater purpose of revealing his glory, of revealing something about his identity as the glorious son of God, that we might believe in him. And you know, brothers, this issue of, of the greater purposes of God being the glory of God might be true in the gospel of John, but it's also true in your experience as a believer following Christ and in my experience as well as a follower of Christ. Everything is for the glory of God. The ultimate purpose and goal of everything that God does in your life, even of saving you, 
from the domain of darkness and transferring you to the kingdom of God's beloved son is that he might glorify himself in and through your life, in and through your redemption, in and through your salvation, in and through your sanctification, leading to your glorification, right? It's for the glory of, of God is to display his majesty and his greatness. Boy, it's hard to see that in the moment, isn't it? It's so hard to see that in the moment. You know, I recall my own journey. My own journey. I didn't always see this. And even now, I often miss it as a believer, as a follower of Christ, seeing the greater purposes of the glory of God in everything that he allows in my life. But I remember even with regards to my own testimony, not seeing God as a good God, as a God who was glorifying himself in and through my circumstances, right? Some of you have heard my, my testimony. I was a bitter dude, resentful prior to Christ, just hateful toward the Lord, Grew up in an abusive home, watching my mom being beaten to a pulp, and that all culminated in my mom being shot in front of me. And you know what? I was so resentful and hateful toward God. I hated God. I would shake my fist, literally, brothers, I would shake my fist as a little boy toward heaven and say, I hate you, God, and curse God with all kinds of bad Spanish uh, words, okay? I mean, I was that kind of a dude. Hated him, resented him. And then one day... I had a collision with Jesus, right? As you guys have. And he changed my heart. He changed that hatred and gave me a heart of love. He gave me a heart of love even towards the man who killed my mom. Where if I were to sit in front of that man today, and word has it that he's still alive, if I were to sit in front of that man today, I could honestly tell him, I don't hate you. I'm not hostile toward you. I love you. And the, the justice of God that you're going to face if you don't repent is greater punishment than anything that I could ever do to you. You need to repent. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? It's God changing our hearts, right? And helping us to see that we are not victims at the end of the day. That we are all mutant, men who have committed mutiny and been rebellious against a holy and righteous God, no matter what your background is. And it takes God changing your heart to see the, the beauty and his greater purposes in and through what he's done in your life to glorify himself through your testimony. I mean, you know what? 20 plus years later, would you believe it? God did a couple of things. He allowed me to go right back into Mexico City where I grew up and I experienced those things. To, unbeknownst to me at the time, take resources and theological training and commentaries in Spanish and all of that right smack to, the, to pastors ministering in the area where I grew up in Mexico City. I couldn't believe it. I have a hard time not breaking down even thinking of, uh, talking about that many times. That God, unbeknownst to me, would have done that. 20 plus years later, and to see my half-brothers and sister and be able to share the gospel with them. Why? Think of it. See the big picture. Somehow God allows me to come here, hear the gospel, uses people in my life to draw me to himself, and one day I'm able to return back to Mexico to share the gospel with, with the, these, these half-brothers and sister of mine who are stuck in Catholicism and Mormonism and paganism of all sorts. Amazing. You see, if I would have only recognized that in the moment, but God allowed even that for me to see in retrospect the greater purposes of, of, of his working in and through me, right? Amazing. That's true for me, brothers. And that's true for you as well. This is why Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11, he bursts forth in the praise and he says, Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. 
How unfathomable are his judgments and unsearchable his ways, right? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? No one. No one. We don't understand the greater purposes of God. But he teaches us those things. Can I ask you, what's your story this morning? What has God allowed you to go through? What is God allowing you to go through right now? And do you recognize this morning that even those things that God allows that you do not understand a sickness, physical issues right now, a death recently, or impending death for all of us, a particular trial or test, etc., all of those things are for the glory of God. And even if we don't understand the what or the why something is happening in our lives doesn't mean that God doesn't understand what is taking place. Right? In his infinite wisdom, he's allowing all of those things for his glory, even if we don't understand those things. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see that? That's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. We are not always, always going to understand what God is doing or allowing, but we can rest assured that we can trust him because of his unchanging character, right? Though our circumstances and situa- life situations fluctuate and ebb and flow, he is the one unchanging constant in the universe. He is the certain one. His character never changes. You can trust him that there is a greater purpose, even if you don't understand it, for why God is allowing something in your life. But sometimes we can inadvertently operate in a sinful way, don't we? In this sense, if we don't understand what God is doing or things don't make sense to us with our primitive minds, we live worried and and anxious as if God doesn't understand what's taking place either, but that is not the case. The other thing that we do as well is that we tend to live, even though we might not verbally say this, we tend to live, brothers, oftentimes as if trials and difficulties and suffering is evil that's not supposed to happen to us. This isn't supposed to happen to me. But go with me to Philippians chapter 1. With regards to suffering in the Christian life, I want you to see this verse and maybe memorize it as I have because it was such a struggle in my life to understand suffering and evil and things that took place. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 Look at what Paul says to these Philippian believers, by the way, Christians. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you, Christian, that for the sake of Christ, watch this, you should not only believe in him, we like that part, salvation, God has granted us salvation, but also suffer for his sake. Experiencing or engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See that word granted there in verse 29? That word granted is the word from which we get grace. It's the verb form. This grace has been given to you, you might put it in verse 29, that for the sake of Christ, this grace has been given to you not only to believe in him, but here's the other part of the grace that you've been given, also to suffer for his sake. I don't want that gift, right? The latter gift. I like the belief part. That God has granted me faith. I don't really like the suffering part. But he says there's a twofold grace gift that God has given you, believer, belief or faith. But also suffering is a grace. Man, because there's a greater purpose in your suffering, right? Do we enjoy it? Should we be like, Lord, more suffering, please? I love suffering. Of course not. But 
We must learn to live well under our suffering by God's grace because there's a higher, greater purpose in what he's doing, right? Glorifying himself as he conforms us into the image of, of Christ. We can rest assured that he's always glorifying himself and he's always after our good. That's why we find great comfort, don't we, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Why do we love that text? It's such a comfort and encouragement. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See that? God is not only glorifying himself through your circumstances, believer, right? As far as you're in this, and so long as you're in the center of his will, submitting yourself to his will, and you're going through difficulties in the midst of that, he's not only glorifying himself, but he's also doing things for your good. Always. Those two things work together. He's glorifying himself, but he's also doing you good. He never glorifies himself by doing evil to you, right? Causing hurt and pain for no reason at all. He's doing you good by conforming you to the image of his son, and thus in doing that glorifying himself. I love that. In the greater purposes of God, he operates to glorify himself as he conforms us to Christ and in our ultimate glorification as well. And so here in the midst of Christ, he's marked The Son of God will glorify himself in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Second, second, jot this down. We learn secondly that we must fulfill God's work while there is still time. Fulfill God's work while there is still time. Even though Jesus faces great hostility here, as we've seen time and time again, he's resolved to do what God has called him to do. And what we learn as well, brothers, is that we must do the same in whatever God has called us to do within the mission of the gospel, right? Now, at least at first glance, it's shocking what we read here in verses 5 and 6. Notice, back to John chapter 11, verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, right? Circle the word love there in verse 5. But and then he builds on this in verse 6. He says, so because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, verse 6, When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days later in the place where he was. Say, what? That's the opposite of what we would do, right? He stays back and he lingers an extra two days, having established that he loves these people, and yet he lingers. Now, if you were to be told that somebody that you loved was ill like that, what would you do? What have you done? Wouldn't you rush to them right away? You would get to them as quickly as you could possibly get to them. So we might be tempted to question Jesus's actions here, right? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus linger this way? Is he uncaring? Is he insensitive? Is he trying to prove a point here, right? What is he doing here? He stalls, he delays. Again, what have we observed about Jesus in the gospel of John? about his character, about his, how he operates, remember, according to his divine timetable, right? Not anyone else's. Always, always, again and again and again. So that informs our interpretation of this and what Jesus does. And so Jesus' delay here is for a greater purpose. He stated it, right? And it's not going to lead ultimately to the death of this man. There's going to be a great miracle that's going to follow. Now watch this. Look at verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. His disciples must have been shocked. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? I mean, they're shocked by this. 
Recall that by the end of John chapter 9, Jesus had just duked it out with the religious leaders, right? They wanted to to stone him, angry with him, hostile toward him, because accusing him of blasphemy. And Jesus is talking about going right back into the lion's den, where he's going to be wiped out by these guys from a human perspective. I mean, this must have been frightening for the disciples. Why would Jesus go right back into the very area where they're going to kill him, surely, and we're going to go down with him? They know that hostility is so great towards Jesus there. They know this. But this is the key. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? Jesus is speaking figuratively here. Remember, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's speaking figuratively here, isn't he? People normally, this is something that we know, normally do their work in the day safely when it's light outside, when they're not limited by the darkness This is especially true or was especially true in an agrarian culture where they depended on on the light to see their work that they were doing, right? Out on the fields and all of that. And what Jesus is saying here is, in like manner, I am the light of the world. He's been saying that throughout the Gospel of John. I'm the light of the world. And as long as I am here, daytime is here when we must work. And nothing is going to stop us. He's speaking of of his ministry and liking his ministry to the daytime, right? Darkness is going to come where he's going to go to the cross, right? And they will stumble these disciples over that initially. But right now it's daytime. It's prime time for him to do his work. This is another way of saying, my hour has not yet come. It's really another way of saying that. Boy, this should have been such a confidence booster for his disciples, right? Think about it. They're super scared. Jesus is heading right back into the location where he would be killed, surely, and they will have to go with him. But in the midst of that, the Lord says, guys, as long as I am here and we have work to do, nothing will deter me or you guys as far as you're doing my work, and so long as you're doing my work, from accomplishing that work. That's what he's saying. As long as you're with him, who is the light of the world, and are in concert with his work, they're going to be okay. They will not stumble. How encouraging is that? Or should have been for his disciples if they got it. They had faith, eyes to see. How encouraging that should be for us as well, right brothers? As long as God has called you to serve him here and he has you here living life, you have a mission to accomplish and there's nothing that will befall you. Nothing because he is with you. You know, there's people, people are just so scared right now. All kinds of folks are anxious stressed out people out in the world looking at the upheaval in our in in europe going on and and even in our country for americans people are just scared about so much that is taking place and you know what it's understandable we shouldn't be shocked about that people who don't have christ and who don't have the christian worldview as revealed through god's word are going to be to live hopeless and in despair that shouldn't shock us but for us as christians it is so different isn't it Our hope is in something, someone, future. The final death blow that Jesus is going to deliver to this world. Where ultimately there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and we will be with Christ. That is where our hope is. And until that time, if God has you in this world, Christian, man, you are to accomplish your mission here in this world, right? 
within the greater framework of the Great Commission. Listen, when it's our time, it's our time. We're not going to live one more day than God intended for us to live. We're not going to die one day less than God intended for us to die. And so we could live courageously. We could live fearlessly knowing that God is with us, knowing that if we're doing his will, we're in the center of his will, we will be allowed here in this world to finish our task, whatever that looks. You need not be fearful. You need to be courageous and bold in the task that God has called you to flesh out, Christian man. What about you? What about you, brother? What has God called you to do as part of, his, of the Great Commission? Right? We all have many missions within the, within the context of that greater mission. What has God called you to do in that home environment for some of us who are dads and still have our children under our roof? You have a mission there. Your, the Great Commission for you begins in the context of your home. Making disciples begins in the context of your home, right? Young and older kids who are under our roof. Great Commission is right there. Are you spiritually leading your family? Are you spiritually leading your wife? Do you pray with your wife? That's part of what God has given you to do, right? That's part of his mission, why he has you here. He's given you a wife. You have a wife. You're to spiritually shepherd your wife. You're to spiritually shepherd your kids, young or older. If you're a grandpa, right? Now you have a wonderful opportunity to invest into your kids and now your grandchildren, right? And be used by God all the more to pass on a legacy of, of Christ-centered theology, even as, you, as you're a grandparent now. What a wonderful opportunity you have. That's part of your, your mission. Are you fulfilling that? What about that work environment? Are you operating as salt and light in that environment where you work? Where you labor hard? Are you a testimony of, of one who works wholeheartedly as unto the Lord? Not for being an, a, a man pleaser, right? But in your work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, you please your boss as well. So that they look at your work and say, man, what, what makes you different? Even though we treat you so bad. Even though this is such a difficult environment. You have such a good attitude. You work so hard. Well, let me tell you about Christ, right? Let me tell you about Christ, because he went to the umph degree to serve me. I want to do the same thing for him. And one of the places that I do that is here in this work environment. I want to glorify Christ. See? Witnessing opportunity, right? How are you doing in those contexts? What about the church? Are you serving Christ in the church? Are you using your spiritual gifts? The abilities, the experiences God has given you. Tomorrow is a wonderful opportunity for you to do that, right? To serve very practically in the context of the church as a man of God. God is glorified in even something like that. Are you serving in the church, brother? See, all of us have these many missions within the context of the Great Commission to fulfill. Are you fulfilling God's work in your life as long as God has you here, right? So Jesus is going to return to Bethany and continue the work that God has given him. And by way of implication, the disciples... Right? Nothing can deter them from their work. And as long as God has us here as his followers, as Christ's followers, we have work to do. And we must fulfill our ministry as well, whatever that looks like. Third, third, we'll have to go a little bit faster through this one, okay? Sorry, I'm kind of verbose with some of these things. But we can delve even deeper into all of these, right? There's so much more. Third, we must be strengthened in our faith. Third, lesson that we learn here. We must be strengthened in our faith. You know, it's easy to, as we study John's gospel, to focus on the evangelistic element of the gospel of John, and it is, 
right at the core, an evangelistic um, book, as we've seen again and again, even per the, the uh, purpose statement in John chapter 20 of what John says, that these things Jesus has done so that you might believe. It's an evangelistic book, but it's also, there's also an edificational element here. And specifically, we see that here in that Jesus' 11 disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, who's a, a, a non-believer, right, the whole way, his 11 disciples are also needing edification. They're needing their faith strengthened. So don't ever forget that the disciples are there every step of the way when Jesus does these miracles. And God is doing something in them to strengthen their faith. And by implication, as we read these accounts, strengthen our faith. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. See that? In the littleness of their faith, the disciples are actually thinking that Jesus is talking about what? Literal sleep. That Jesus is going to awaken Lazarus from physical sleep. In fact, this is what John comments in verse 13. Notice in his commentary, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Boy, however we understand this, it's evident that these disciples still need some developing. That they need their faith strengthened here. That their faith is weak and short-sighted. They're not seeing the spiritual dynamic of all of this. And so the Lord Jesus then clarifies in verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Notice that in verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, right? Jesus is doing this also for the sake of these disciples, He's doing it for the glory of God, to glorify himself as the son of God. He's doing it for the benefit of this man and people who love this man. But he's also doing this for his disciples that they may believe. In other words, brothers, Jesus' powerful raising of Lazarus from the dead was also to strengthen the faith of his own disciples because they need preparation as Jesus is going to go to the cross and they will go through some serious trials, right? Their feet are going to put be put to the fire very soon as far as testing goes and what Jesus is going to go through. They need strengthening. You know, this has implication not only for the disciples, but on another level for all disciples of Christ, right? That's why we go through the things that we go through. We go through things so that, so that our faith may be strengthened as followers of Jesus. That's another, that's the edificational function of reading the gospel of John and being familiar with the life of Christ, that our faith is strengthened as we watch what Jesus does and hear what he says. That we might draw closer to him. Listen, in every trial or test that we experience, God is doing something to sanctify us. Right? Just like the disciples. He's doing something to sanctify us. Isn't that why we love James chapter 1? Go to James chapter 1. Classic text about our response to trials, right? Because God is doing something in us. James 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says, when you, when you fall into the midst of variegated, multicolored trials in this arena of, of suffering and life, he says, at that very moment, count it all joy. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Verse 3, for you know 
This is knowledge by experience. For you know in the midst of those trials that the testing of your faith is not purposeless, but produces steadfastness, endurance. What our pastor was talking about on Sunday, right? Endurance. And let, Christian man, verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, we want to be used by God to serve him. We want to be complete for every good work. We want God to use us. We want to be fruitful. We want to be useful. But what this passage is saying is suffering, trials, testing, man of God are part of the process for you becoming fit to serve Christ. We don't want that gift of suffering, right? Trials. He says it's necessary. And verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you need help, come to the Lord in your weakness and say, God, help me to see this. Give me the faith to see this. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded, the, the dipsukos man, the two-souled man, the doubting man, the split personality man. The man who professes something with his mouth, and on the inside, you're somebody different. You're a, a doubting, two-souled, dipsukos man. He says, don't be that guy. Wholeheartedly come to God in faith. But what's the point? God is working out in your trials the strengthening of your faith as you respond to him with a submissive heart and a submissive will, right? Amazing. We go through these things so that God would strengthen our faith. And that's what the disciples are going through here. But not only is God growing us and strengthening us, brothers, but there's also a benefit in what God allows us to go through for other people. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. And we'll end here. But I want you to see that God strengthens you through the things that you go through, the trials that you experience, not only for your own personal benefit to equip you to serve him, but also for the benefit of other people. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. What does God do with his comfort? Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in, in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see that? In the midst of your trials, in the midst of the passing away of a loved one, in the midst of your afflictions, in the midst of those things that you experience, God pours his comfort upon you. Why? So that, verse 4, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So God strengthens you, strengthens your faith, but he does it not, not just for your personal usefulness and fruitfulness in serving him, but also so that you would serve your fellow brother and sister in Christ as well, right? We believe that. That's why part of the reason why you're here this morning. You're here because you want to be encouraged and strengthened in your faith, but you also want to pass on what you've learned to other brothers, knowing that this is going to strengthen their faith as well, right? So I love this. I love these lessons that even as we glean the majesty of Christ as he raises Lazarus from the dead, and we're going to see this uh, in a couple of weeks, we learn these lessons about the way that God works in the midst of crises to even strengthen us, to show us his greater purposes, to show us, brothers, that, that all the more we need to be about his mission of fulfilling his, his great commission here in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. 
Oh, Lord, we could spend all day looking at this wonderful text and even hearing from one another about the things that you are doing, Lord, in our hearts and lives through the ministry of your word as we dive deep into this wonderful gospel. Thank you for the majesty and the greatness of Christ. I pray that, Lord, we might never grow cold and indifferent to the things of Christ, but that all the more, Lord, you might, Lord, cause our hearts to be um, strengthened in faith, cause our love to be all the more fervent for Christ, because it's only as we love Christ and as we embrace his majesty and his glory and his greatness that we can love one another, love our wives, love our children, love our grandchildren, love those in the church, serve, Lord, in a way that honors you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers, break.